Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steenberg, a 3L at Syracuse University College of Law, JDI program. Today, we are honored to have with us Dr. P.W. Singer, strategist at New America, consultant for the U.S. military, the intelligence community, and Hollywood, and author of several best-selling books, including Wired for War and Ghost Fleet. Today, we are speaking to him about a book called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media that he co-wrote with Emerson T. Brooking. Nearing the end of your book right now, I've not finished it. Fascinating, beyond fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Singer. Oh, thank you both for those kind words and for having me on. Well, one thing you remind readers of early on is that information disinformation campaigns are not new, centuries old, but the explosion of social media creates this whole new level in this realm, and it's really informational warfare. What in all of it was perhaps the most disturbing part of this for you? Oh, interesting. So the concept of uh, the book is that, as you noted, we've seen information spread in all sorts of different ways, and they've always had an influence on politics, on war, pop culture, you name it. But what social media has done is that it has brought together two different types of communication revolution, so to speak. So if you think about the technologies that change the game for communications, but the broader world, they either allowed us to have a new kind of one-to-one communication, the telegraph, the telephone, you know, vast improvements, or they allowed you to have a vastly better one-to-many conversation, the printing press or radio or television broadcasting out. And what social media did is it brought those two together so that you could simultaneously have a one-on-one conversation, but also broadcast it out. And for the first time to the entire world in real time. And that's been incredibly powerful. And it's been used for both good and ill. You know, in the book, we looked at everything from um, awful examples like ISIS propaganda to good examples like Ice Bucket Challenge. But I think what disturbed me the most is the incredibly poisonous effect. And I mean that in all meanings of the term that it's had on the American body politic and literally the American body. How easy it was to poison our system when you think about the impact of mis and disinformation on everything from um, our democracy um, to the you know the just array of conspiracy theories that you saw you know otherwise very thoughtful people be taken in by and then spread within your your own networks. We've all got that that relative, that friend who are like, oh, wow. To you know, I think the way it's played out during the pandemic. And, you know, the comedian Jim Gaffigan talked about that, where, you know, everyone had sort of that kooky friend. And then all of a sudden, they're now saying, you know, really scary stuff. But it's not just they're saying it, they're engaging in behavior that doesn't just endanger them, it endangers you, it endangers your kids. You know, think about America. I mean, we've had 
are coming on 250 years of experience at democracy, freedom of speech, healthy media, uh, et cetera, and yet it poisoned our system. What about all those other states that didn't have that experience? And, and we're obviously not out of it. So kind of a long-winded way of getting at your question of um, what disturbed me the most is how pernicious and poisonous it's been, and, and we're not out of it yet. Full disclosure, I avoid social media at all costs. What are your social media habits and how has this book and your research influence how you look at everything that you see and disseminate? Well, let's be clear about this. First, you said you avoid social media at all costs. And yet you and I are recording a podcast right now. Very true. And which um, will allow you to broadcast out to many. That podcast has everything from um, comment section at the bottom of it where people will rate to how will this be advertised and spread out to the world? It will be advertised and spread out through ABA's Twitter accounts and Instagram and, and whatever else. I'm guessing that um, when you decide to go to a restaurant, you might look at Yelp for ratings, not just what the restaurant critic at the newspaper said, but what other people said. Or maybe you utilize some kind of navigation aid in uh, driving to work or on a trip or when you're planning uh, what hotel to reserve to, my guess is you might um, go on to LinkedIn to to set, you know, let people know about your career and or find jobs for it. My point is, we're actually all on social media unless you really, really are saying, you know what, I don't use the internet. But there's a second point that's really powerful um, and it shows the effect of this. There was a survey done of professional journalists. So the way it was old school, whether it was a newspaper reporter, a producer for not a podcast, but a radio talk show, a cable news host. And over 90% of them said that they use social media to decide what stories to cover or not cover what angle to take on those stories, who to interview for those stories, and if it was still trending, whether to double down with another story the next day in the newspaper, another segment on that radio talk show. So the point of it was, even if you're not on social media, which, you know, as we know, a lot of people are, even if you're going old school and say, I only read the newspaper, the physical version that comes to me, or I only listen to the radio, you're actually still shaped by it. In fact, you're might be shaped by it more by not having that awareness. And so the point is for the attacker, if they can hack social media, so to speak, if they can drive their ideas viral, which we call like war, they can not just hack social media, they can hack radio, newspaper, television. So incredibly powerful. Okay, so then you said, you know, what about my habits? I'm like the the doctor that's saying, you know, don't smoke. And then you might find me um, hiding in the alleyway smoking myself. <laughs> you know, so I, I definitely, as anyone, you know, can see online, I've used social media and I use it for everything from, as I was pointing, to consume, to figure out what restaurants to go to, to I put out my own articles, to I pop off about everything from my views about sports, to politics, to pop culture, to I just shared an awful dad joke on Twitter earlier um, that that combined uh, politics and dad jokes. So it was about the, the truckers protest going around DC, um, annoying people related to people talking about, you know, how can we get Putin to stop? And I said, you know, can we not just give the truckers a 
off ramp, but I'm bumped. And so I apologize uh, for that both joke. But the point is I use social media like everyone else and, and my kids will be embarrassed by it. Like I will be eventually embarrassed by what they put on social media. You know, you hinted at so much of it, and and yes, to be fair, you you nailed it. Most of those I am a part of, and so yes, I am a part of social media. But in this web of information, misinformation, disinformation, you know, you point out there's a kid in a Russian factory paid to create like words and then push the Russian messaging or messaging to sow discontent. Doesn't necessarily have to be pro-Russian propaganda or anything. All seemingly as well very innocuous, and liked, pushed by others, 300 accounts to the opinions of 300 million plus voices. How do we distinguish that source of information? So a couple of things here. The first is you put your finger on what we've seen out of Russian information warfare, and they were the masters of it in large part because of first mover advantage. They were the ones early on in this. And second, they were largely pushing on an open door. And so if you look at the um, activity during the 2016 U.S. election, for example, yeah, the numbers are astounding when we pull back and and think about it. There were over 3,000 documented Russian sock puppet accounts. That's when there's a real person, like you noted, behind a false front account. Um, There were more than 60,000 Russian bot accounts. That's an algorithm driving overall trends incredibly effective in shaping conversation online. For example, on election day 2016, the sixth most read account was a false front account posing as if it was the Tennessee Republican Party when it was not to, it's more about the, not the the raw numbers, but the followers and who they're elevating. So that account, why it was popular is it was being elevated out by other people with hundreds of accounts to retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn turned convicted felon, turned pardon, turned QAnon conspiracy theorist. He has hundreds of thousands of followers. And um, during this period of time, he elevated at least 25 of these different Russian information warfare accounts. He also elevated over 16 different bizarre conspiracy theories, you know, everything from Pizzagate nonsense to um, claims that the the UN was getting ready to take over the country. The point is, is it's not about the individual numbers, but how it elevates out. Same thing on ad buys. Facebook found, reported after the election, that um, 143 million Americans were unknowingly exposed to Russian propaganda on their Facebook accounts. That's half the U.S. population. Now, the point of this is that a lot of that activity was possible back in 2016 because it was sort of a laissez-faire attitude from the operators of these platforms. It's a very different situation right now. The low-hanging fruit of the bot accounts and some of the sock puppet accounts and the ad buys, things that were possible in 2016, not so possible now. And so, you know, and the platform companies, and this gets to the legal side, belatedly responded out of a combination of fear of regulation, fear of lawsuits, their own customers saying, you know, I don't I don't like what's playing out on in this space. They didn't do it like any other company out of the goodness of their heart. They responded to, you know, market and political and legal pressures. So the landscape has changed. Um, and in turn, the Russians changed. You know, in 2016, it was a strategy of injecting falsehood into the American body politic. By 2020, that was not the strategy. It was more about elevating our own extremes. So, you know, QAnon. Russia can't claim that. That's American, baby. We created it. Now, Russia did 
pour a little kerosene on the fire to, to help it elevate. But, you know, it was already there on its own. Same thing about some of the things on the far right and far right extremism. Um, Russia also pivoted to hiring people not within Russia, but in other nations as workarounds, Latin America, Africa, basically people doing um, very cheap contract work uh, as these sock puppets, including also as a way of injecting into the U.S. But we're not the only target of this. A study out of Australia found that over um, 30 different democracies have been targeted in this way. One of them was Ukraine back in 2014. Now, what's been interesting, and this points to your second question, is, okay, how do we react to that? How do we get ahead of that? And we've seen learning, we've seen response to it. We've seen changes, not just on what the platform companies allow or not, but how governments can respond, how corporations, how individuals can respond. And um, like everything, whether it's cybersecurity or public health, there's no one silver bullet solution. You need a response um, from all of these different actors. And it's not about eliminating the problem. It's about driving risks down. And so we can see on the government strategy side, a, a vast difference between how the U.S., the presidential administrations handled it in 2016 or throughout the Trump years, basically um, in 2016, the Obama uh, White House was sort of taken aback by this, not even ready for it. During the Trump years, an administration that had a conflicted relationship with mis and disinformation and fake news, but also had a, a challenge of running a proper interagency process. It was, you know, uh, more, it was much more reactive to what the president was tweeting rather than, you know, kind of being very strategic. And I think even if you're the most ardent Republican, you would agree with that to um, the way it engaged with allies like a NATO, very different than what we've seen out of the Biden team, confrontational versus coordinated. And so you have that kind of change, but we're still nowhere near where we need to be. If we want to really be top in class as in terms of democracies reacting to this threat, you want to look at what the nations like the Estonias, the Finlands, et cetera, have put into place. Corporate side, again, as I mentioned, very different reactions in 2016, 2018, compared to 2022, a lot of what the corporations have put into place in the last couple of years has been reacting more to the pandemic than the democracy side. But the key takeaway is that there are a whole array of actions that the platform companies said were legally or technically impossible for them to do. And I mean, I literally had you know, a vice president, one of these companies kind of wag his hand in my face of like, how could you think we could ever do something like this? And then suddenly they did it. It wasn't technically or legally impossible. It's just they relooked at it for a variety of reasons from they worried about, as I noted, the legal regulatory environment changing to the pandemic. Hold it. Wow, this is starting to affect us. But then you have the final part, which is the individual. And um, we need to better equip the individual with what you might think of as cyber citizenship skills. What cyber citizenship skills are is recognizing that we're all online, as you and I were talking about. We're all online in some way, shape, or form. Particularly our kids are online. We're shaped by it. If you're a lawyer, whether it's in your own legal practice to the clients that you represent, what plays out online matters. And so because of that, we need better training for it. And cyber citizenship is bringing together three types of skill sets. One is digital literacy, understanding how the space works. It's the ability to distinguish between 
fact and opinion to understanding the role of algorithms, how those shape what you see online. When you go on YouTube or when you're on Facebook or Instagram, you know, it, you're seeing things because of the algorithm. A second skill set, though, is what's known as sort of the citizenship side of it. it. It's not what you know, it's how you behave. Don't be an internet troll. Think about what you post and how that relates to the friends and family, coworkers in your network. And then there's a third category, which is threat awareness. It's understand how are people trying to manipulate you online, whether it's Russian information warriors to anti-vaxxers to um, just a company trying to, to market to you. And you need all of those skills. You know, if, if you could have great knowledge of fact versus opinion, but if you don't know how someone's trying to manipulate you, that's not going to be effective. Or you could be very concerned about, you know, I want to be a good actor online, but if you don't know how algorithms work, then you're not going to be effective. We need to teach that. And unfortunately, we don't do a good job of it. And the we need to teach that goes back to the three different actors. How is government supporting the teaching of that in our schools? How are the corporations enabling that? You know, interesting, the platform companies, they provide bumps to you on classic cybersecurity. Hey, how's your password? Hey, what's your cell phone? So that we can um, help secure account. They don't say, hey, these are things you need to know to operate effectively in our space. They don't do that kind of bumps of training. And then there's the final part. There's the you and I. How do we teach ourselves and our kid? And again, I think of that parallel of public health you know, there's a role for government, but there's also a role for me in, you know, washing your hand, wearing a mask, getting a vaccine. That's not just about protecting yourself. That's about you protecting others. It's about a sense of responsibility, but woven into awareness and education. Secretary of State Blinken recently announced that the Biden administration stated Myanmar's military genocide, uh, committed genocide against the Rohingya minority. In the book, as an example, you actually use that to say social media fueled genocide. How did you come to that conclusion? What and and then with that, do you see this ultimately as someday some sort of defense? Like, oh, I didn't know I was looking at this, these as the facts, and I reacted to what I thought were quote unquote the facts. So uh, a quick answer to the second question is we're literally seeing that play out in U.S. courts right now. A number of the January 6th defendants have made that kind of excuse, either excusing it as um, I didn't know or someone else made me do it. Um, and they've specifically said, uh, you know, the president told me to do it and so I did it. And we'll see the courts decide that. Peter Singer, I am not a lawyer. I do not play a lawyer on TV, but I, you know, I'll use that parallel of a parent. When my kid does something wrong that's self-evidently wrong, them saying, you know, someone else told me, I am like, well, that's fine. You know, we'll figure out accountability for them if we can, but that's not an excuse for you. And particularly when it's um, very, you know, clear, okay, you, you you beat up a policeman or you smashed a window or you went through a broken window, mm -hmm. you went into a government facility. I mean, these are known rules, right? So don't give me that BS. Um, but it's playing out in the courts right now in the US, let alone in you know another state. To the example of Myanmar, yeah, it was a mass killing that's gone after over 600,000 people that was both motivated and coordinated mostly online in terms of everything from um, urging the attacks 
to coordination for it. And, and that actually is um, important to understand the different ways that social media platforms are used in different countries. Facebook used to be very proud and, and talk up how it had essentially um, replaced much of the traditional media approaches in Myanmar. You know, government used it for you know, everything from communication to reporting results to in, in a way that you previously would have used TV or newspaper. Unfortunately, it was also used for ill. Somewhat related to that is that at that time, Facebook, by now its own admission, was not doing enough um, kind of monitoring in other nations of how its platforms were being used. So simultaneously to it, you know, pushing and extolling, it didn't have enough local language speakers to be able to go, oh, wow, um, okay, we're seeing calls for genocide here. And that's been a major issue for the company is it, and you could say understandably, has dedicated most of its content moderation efforts inside the U.S., but that has meant that it's, there's been large areas of the world where actually it's arguably more influential in shaping attitudes, politics, physical, real-world actions, that it hasn't had that kind of investment in local language speaking and the like. So hopefully that we're seeing that change. But yeah, that points to the example there. We've seen similar instances in India. I mean, you could, again, it, it the way that you use technology to coordinate, motivate, you know, previously you would have used radio during the Rwandan genocide. It was primarily radio that was the platform. Now you utilize social media. We are speaking with Dr. P.W. Singer, strategist, consultant, and author. We'll be right back. And we are back now with Dr. P.W. Singer, strategist at New America, consultant for the U.S. military, the intelligence community, and Hollywood, and author of several best-selling books. You begin chapter six of your book, Like War, with a quote, media weapons can actually be more potent than atomic bombs. It is from the propaganda handbook of the Islamic State. Did it surprise you to how the world responded to the media weapons it used, including at one point you mentioned votes were taken on whether to kill someone, hold them hostage, and then they showed the results. And And there was one thing that really struck me. It said, you could go in a bathroom in a bar and come out with blood on your hands. And it just, it just hit home because all of these things are happening halfway around the world, and yet you have influenced the end of someone's life. That's an illustrative quote because it both shows the attitude of that individual, but also like so much online, it has large amounts of exaggeration and attention grabbing woven into it, right? So do I believe that a tweet is more powerful than an atomic bomb? No, but this is the the discourse of the propagandist for ISIS. And why he's saying that is not that he would turn down an atomic bomb, but rather he knows the central role that social media played to the literal um, build-out growth, notoriety, to tactical battlefield operations of that group. Through social media, ISIS was able to persuade some 30,000 people from over 90 different countries to travel to Iraq and Syria to join it, to join a group made up of people they'd never met before. It was the direct opposite of um, how Al-Qaeda operated. Al-Qaeda, the name of it, literally, it's a translation of the term the base, 
which was a reference to the mountain training camp in um, Afghanistan, where you had to be known by someone to get into it. And then only if you went through it, were you um, sort of bumped up to the level of, for example, the 9-11 attackers. And the same thing, the flip for social media, you know, besides inducing all these people to come to Iraq and Syria, ISIS is influencing people to conduct their own acts of terrorism everywhere from Paris to Texas. It's also creating a greater fear of terrorism. There's a really interesting factoid that the fear of terrorism among Americans was greater after the kind of emergence and virality of ISIS online than in the literal weeks after 9-11. You know, think about that mm. as a point of comparison. Weeks after 9-11, we've had 3,000 Americans killed. We don't know what's coming next. And yet polling showed we were more fearful of terrorism after ISIS emerges, at which point it had actually only killed one American civilian. And at that point, no American soldiers. And yet we were more afraid of terrorism. And that, of course, you know, was a win for that group. And then you see the effect of it on our own politics and the like. So it illustrates the, the power of this space. But what was also notable is what ISIS was doing was not that original. It was just copycatting. And so, you know, for like war, We've had a very kind of dismal discussion, um, but <laughs> we looked at examples that you know ranged from pop culture to politics, examples that ranged from Iraq and ISIS to Chicago street gangs to one of the interesting ones that brings these two together is how ISIS's top recruiter was copycatting Taylor Swift and the strategies that she utilized to reach the top of her game. And so the lesson, the takeaway from all of this is there's a set of rules that apply across these different actors, across these different locales. And of course, these rules can be utilized for both good and bad purposes. It's just up to us to understand them and either deploy them for our own good and or figure out when someone's up to no good, how they're trying to apply them to us. And so, you know, that's what I think about. And it's sort of, you know, stunning when you, you know, look at what, you know, like an ISIS recruiter is doing. You're like, ah, oh, but that's what like a regular teenager is doing. Like, oh, well, part of it is explainable by the fact that they, they're coming from this world. The ISIS recruiter was actually a failed rapper. And in that mimicking Taylor Swift, I think you were speaking about in one point in the book, the authenticity and the role of authenticity and being relatable and even pulling cats into the equation to show like, look how relatable I am. Come join ISIS. And yeah, when, when, when we looked at whether something went viral, again, whether it was something good or bad, whether it was, uh, um, you know, ice bucket challenge to ISIS propaganda, jokes, um, remember pizza rat to, you know, pernicious disinformation about a war, about a disease. They consistently had these, these attributes. There's several of them, but one, as you know, it was authenticity. And it doesn't actually have to be real authenticity because everything online you know it's 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 often self-consciously presented out there so it's the combination of yes it really is me but it might be the third or fourth take that you did that selfie or you got to get the lighting right for that live youtube hit so it's live it really is you you're not in a studio 
but yeah, we, we had sort of curated. So there's that authenticity, there's that relatability, there's the humanization effect. Uh, there's a lot of different things going on there. Again, you know, one of the, the funny observations is the way that Wendy's was more authentic online than Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is a real person, but she did not come across authentic online. Whereas Wendy's, it was a real, it's not anymore. It's a hamburger chain, but yet the way that they operated online came across more authentic and did a better job of winning hearts and minds. Cats, um, I joke, they're the uh, most effective weapon in all of information warfare. And the idea of soldiers posing with cats, terrorists posing with cats is absurd. And yet it's a tactic that's been used for good and ill by ISIS members to we've seen them deployed in the Ukraine war. And, you know, it's 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 both cats are cute, cuddly. It's also like every other meme. It's kind of building on something else. And Internet cats has a long running history to it. And so, yeah, it's it's a it's a one of these just strange, weird things of the online world. Since you brought it up, memes, I want to pivot to the weaponization of memes, I believe, I, I'm not sure if this, you can correct me here with it, if it originated with DARPA, but the utility of memes for influence campaigns, transforming memes into weapons, he who controls memes controls the world came from somebody else. And so embracing this mimetic warfare, what does that mean? Is that what this means with cats and <laughs> so that one was a really interesting, what you're pulling from is a, um, it was a report you know, this is the challenge of writing books. You're like, try and go back and remember that that footnote reference. But if I recall it correctly, yes, that was a report related to, you know, how can we weaponize memes and the idea of mimetic warfare with, you know, the idea that if you, you know, how do you drive ideas viral is one of the most effective me means to do so. And memes work by building on past understandings, past cultural sort of touchstones, but then you take it in a new direction. And it was a report looking at, you know, look, this is really effective. Um, and it, in fact, it's one of the ways to shape both hearts and minds online, of course, with real world effects. And then what was notable about it is the same person who did that report later became one of the key people in um, supporting the Trump campaign and conducting, you know, the lessons of mimetic warfare on its behalf. There's memes of all, you know, they're everything from Star Wars to cats to Pepe the Frog to, um, look, it was described, you know, religion has a certain aspect of memes to it. It takes past understandings and builds upon it and takes it in the new layers. It's an effective tool. It's an effective approach. We need to be very, very careful here, though, just like if we're thinking about a lawsuit or battlefield behavior, let's not over-exaggerate it. Let's not say, you know, oh, it's only the meme that will win out. No, you know, you have to still have your day in court. You have to still operate on the battlefield. But if you ignore this space, you will not do well at it because the information space is what shapes all of these other actions. So if we use Ukraine as an example, the information side is what has kept the Ukrainian public and body politic together when Putin's goal from the very start was to fracture it and rapidly collapse it. It was also important to keeping the wider world 
on the side of Ukraine and providing everything from the literally tens of thousands of anti-tank and anti-aircraft um, weapons that are keeping Ukraine in the fight and causing such physical pain to the Russian army to it's also why we're seeing on the geopolitical and geoeconomic side the massive sanctions from governments, but also corporations joining in as well, which of course is causing the economic and financial pain within Russia, which is what is most likely to shape Putin's decision-making, not just merely, I lost soldiers. I mean, I, I don't know Vladimir Putin, but my guess is he's probably not too heartbroken by a Russian soldier dying, but he is worried about the collapse of the Russian economy and what that means for his own political rule. And so the information fight matters, you know, If in, and, and we've seen, you know, if, for Russia, if, if you've lost Switzerland, Switzerland's putting sanctions on you, or oil and gas companies are joining in or pulling out, you know, when Halliburton's saying, you know what, this is just too much for us, we're out. That means you've lost the information fight and that has real consequences, right? Or on the military side, we saw Germany go from saying, you know what, we're not gonna give military aid. At most, we're gonna give 500 helmets to Ukraine. That's, I'm not making that number up. That was their original plan. Mm -hmm. And then the online world, including their own body politics, says, no, 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 this is not. And Germany, within a matter of days, pivots and says, remember when we said we were going to give 500 helmets to Ukraine, not going to matter that much? We're going to give hundreds of Panzerfaust, which are anti-tank rockets. And so the point of what I'm getting at is this matters in the same way that if you're a lawyer, you can say, well, none of this matters. It's, it's you know, I, I live in the realm of law. Well, it matters in shaping everything from what juries and judges believe to I've spoken to um, gatherings of state attorney generals and state judges who are deeply concerned about the effect of this on their rulings and whether they are respected or not, concerns about what it means for law to how you are um, thinking about your own law firm and whether people come to you, whether they trust you. That's all shaped by the online world. So it doesn't mean it's the only thing. It's how it all wraps together. And you're you're moving into my next question in this Russia's war with Ukraine and, and like war hitting the battlefields and influencing this war. We've also seen AI come to this in terms of emulating speech, stitching together the images and videos. We saw Russia try to do it with President Zelensky in fake announcements. You say this line is only to get going to get more and more blurred. Where is this all heading? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, where's it all heading? I think like so much else, it takes the ideas and concepts that we first saw in science fiction and they, you know, become real. They become our normal. And look, you know, and that's that's played out with everything from flying machines to um you and I communicating across a, a computer network. So what we've seen with artificial intelligence is Let's pull back on this. We're living through one of the most momentous technology developments in all of human history. It's very bold to say that, but we've been talking about the advent of AI for literally thousands of years. I mean, you can find discussions of it in ancient Greek mythology or um, in Judaic text. Uh, if you're a sci-fi person, we've been talking about it for over a hundred years and it's now coming true. And I'm not saying like, oh, it's, you know, it means it's coming to life. I just mean we're using 
the various forms of whatever you want to call it, machine intelligence, neural nets, et cetera, to shape our world, to take on roles that humans used to only um, be able to do. As an aside, a more recent book I did called Burn In looks at this, you know, what it, what are the different uses of AI? What are what are the ways it's going to play out in the world? Everything from how is Amazon going to use it to the police to um, one of the main characters in it is a contract lawyer who sees their role automated. And that sounds like um, crazy sci-fi, except contract law is an area that pays very well. However, Right now, not 30 years in the future, an AI can actually look at a contract and um, on average find more errors to fix than a um, trained human contract lawyer is. So warning. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but the point, and, and so Bernan explores that. Taking it to the social media side, yeah, you know, think about all the challenges that we've had with this weaponization. Again, you know, of everything from our politics to marketing to your kids to coronavirus. And that's without AI. That's without um, what's popularly known as deep fakes, using an AI to um, create something that's uh, incredibly difficult for a human to figure out whether it's real or not, um, a packet of audio, a video. And we're starting to see that introduced. Like everything else on the internet, it will be both marketized and weaponized. It will be used for good. It will be used for ill marketization. We have already seen companies offer up fake people for use in your internet ads. Um, One entity even um, explored using it to make your workforce look more diverse than it actually was in its online presentation. We've also seen the politics side. The first use of deepfakes in politics was one um, targeting the Belgian premier. It was the Belgian premier giving a speech on coronavirus that they never actually gave. And then, as you noted, we saw it pop up during the Ukraine conflict. There was a deepfake of Zelensky surrendering when, of course, he did not actually give that speech. Now, these early versions are relatively easy to distinguish. They've got certain tells within them, but of course, each new generation gets better and better. And so it becomes more and more difficult. And then we get to, you know, the the questions of what do we do about this? And the answers, you know, range from, as we talked about, how do we get people to understand and and recognize that they exist and um, be aware of them to what is the role of regulation? Should it be something that government intervenes into and says, this is not allowed? Or is it something that is self-regulatory? The platform companies decide what is allowed or not vis-a-vis deepfakes. My own take on it, again, I'm not claiming to be a lawyer, but my belief is that you can't ban them overall. That would cross First Amendment issues because deepfakes, have, you know, again, you've been used for politics, for marketing. There, there are aspects of it related to the methodology. You could argue freedom of speech. But what I would like is the companies or some kind of regulatory environment that doesn't ban them, but essentially puts a watermark on them. So you can create a deep fake, you can, you can utilize it, but by having that little watermark, it allows the positive uses of it for entertainment or marketing, but it takes away the, manip- the, the pernicious manipulation. If it's got the little watermark in the corner, you can say, oh, I enjoy it, I still get the fruits of it, but 
I know this is a fake. And so that watermark to me is, it's sort of the equivalent of a, a blue check on Twitter. Is that actually real Donald Trump? Or are you just posing as him? Blue check allows us to see and, and or not. So I'd want the watermark approach. And it would also move the companies away from trying to figure out the content. Am I okay with this content or that content? And just say, you know what? Did you follow the rules? Did you put the watermark or are you trying to take advantage of people? Oh, you didn't. So I don't care whether you're using it for marketing or your deep fake is going after, you know, this politician, you violated the rule on how you, how everyone is supposed to act related to deep fakes. That's my own sense of how we approach it. From your perspective, and I appreciate this will be my last question because you've just been so gracious with your time, but I want to conclude by asking like, what is your advice for law students? As they're, as they're heading out, I mean, anyone can listen to this, but from, the, from that perspective, from your perspective and, and speaking to law students, what would you say in this context? So I think it goes back to those layers of activity and our own role within them. So there's the role of government. And many of the folks listening to this are going to go into government or they will be shaping the laws that government you know, follows and implements to their role as a citizen. Um, they'll be voting on it. And so being sensitive to what can government do in this space to better serve and protect, so to speak, our population, our democracy, our public health system, when it comes to these new kind of information threats. We can no longer ignore them as not mattering. We know they matter now, so let's catch up to it. And let's let's bring in best practices and best practices, including from other democracies. So constantly being willing to learn and implement on the governmental side. On the corporate side, many people will be working for corporations or representing them and or customers to them. And much of the ills of this space came out of a combination of a uh, attitude that was, well, our product can only be for the good. We're good people. And oh, by the way, us making profit and expanding the product to the world could only be for the good. Um, Facebook, for example, used to have a, a commercial that was the more you connect, the better it gets. Now that sounds, that was back in 2012. Um, now that sounds really creepy, right? If you think about it, the more you connect, the better I get. I did it really? But it's not just about that attitudinal. It's about getting ahead of problems. Much of the problems for the companies have been when they waited for the bad thing to happen and they only responded after the fact. It's known as red teaming or we use an approach called useful fiction. Basically, you in a realistic way, explore scenarios of what might happen. So take the example of live video broadcast via your social media. Facebook was taken aback when teenagers used it to broadcast out their suicides, when terrorists used it to broadcast out a mass killing. Anyone who knew anything about teenagers or terrorists could have said, yeah, this might happen. What are you going to do to have a policy for it rather than waiting for the bad thing to happen and then developing a policy. And that's the same thing when we think about like uh, ills like, you know, vaccine disinformation. It was obvious it was going to come, but we waited for the bad thing. So as a company, as someone who advises companies, how do you help them understand the difference between doing good and doing well, making a profit, which is doing well, it's what businesses, it's what they're designed to do, but doing good, which is the moral side. They don't always perfectly align. That's just the nature of the beast. 
And then second, how can you aid them to get ahead of problems through visualizations rather than waiting for it? And then the final aspect is us, us as individuals. What is our role and responsibility in the role and in, in who we are? We're citizens, we're consumers, we're that act Peter W. Singer on Twitter or, you know, whatever your handle is, that's who you are. You're also potentially a parent, you're a family member. So how are you individually seeking to educate yourself and seeking to be a responsible actor online? Because, uh, you know, we end the book on the idea that you are now what you share and what you share actually shows who you truly are. By that meaning, you know, the online world looks at you and the real world looks at you by how you portray yourself online, but how you portray yourself online actually reveals a lot about you and your own, I don't just mean like where you live and your politics, but like who you truly are. If you're an internet troll, it shows me something about you. If you're sharing anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory, it shows me something about who you truly are. And so having that sense of awareness and ethic is something we all need to take into our lives because we're responsible, not just for ourselves, but everyone else that's in our network. Dr. P.W. Singer, strategist at New America, consultant for the U.S. military, the intelligence community in Hollywood, author of several best-selling books. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.